The reading is the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Jesus continued. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise Christ. Thank you very much indeed for filling in those uh, little surveys earlier. Uh, I should have said, I think sound and PowerPoint are the two jobs I would most, uh, I'd least like to do in church. They're the kind of jobs that everyone notices when it goes wrong, but nobody notices when it goes well. They're so important, uh, and I, I don't think we uh, give enough thanks to the, the sound guys and the uh, PowerPoint people. So do encourage them. Thank you for filling those in. Uh, if you haven't put it back in a box yet, when the uh, offering comes around, please do do that, and uh, we'll... we'll get your responses. Uh, Well, we pick up the end of this uh, amazing parable, uh, and as we do, uh, let's say a word of prayer to ask the Lord to help us.
Father, our great desire is to honour you. And we thank you that our King, the Lord Jesus, uh, gave his life for us. And we pray that that would be something that we delight in and marvel at and long to rejoice in. So, Father, as we look at your grace this morning, would it be amazing to us? For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A few moments ago we sung it. But do we love God's grace? Are we able to sing those words with our whole hearts? God's grace, his undeserved kindness, is it amazing to you? I guess if I asked us to put our hands in the air, most of us would would raise them. Yes, grace, it's wonderful. I think those listening to Jesus' parable would say, yes, it's great. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you'll know that Jesus is telling this parable to two different groups of people. There's the, uh, the sinners and the tax collectors. They're the people who've blown it with God. And uh, if you were here last week, you, you'll know that they were like the, the younger son. We, we read the whole story today, but we're only going to look at the second half. They were like the younger son, and they love grace because it means even though they've blown it, they can come back to God and find not anger or bitterness, but a wonderful welcome. I guess if you ask the other group before Jesus, the Pharisees, the, the religious teachers, do you love grace? They'd say, yes, we do. Because we love the word of God. And the word of God tells us that God is gracious. They'd know the famous line from Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. They'd say, of course we love grace. But then Jesus tells this parable. We pick up this parable and we see an older son who hates grace. And the oldest one is supposed to be a mirror. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders are supposed to look in that mirror and see themselves. And see that though they say they they love grace, when they see grace in practice, they hate it. Because we're told at the start of this parable that the religious teachers were muttering because Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. He's eating with those who don't deserve it. We do deserve it. They don't. And so they mutter. And I think Jesus invites us this morning to look into this same mirror and ask, do we really love grace? Do we love grace when we see it in action, going to somebody who doesn't deserve it? The title of this sermon this morning is is The Danger of Being Good. And the first thing I want us to see this morning is the person who's good, the person who thinks they've got themselves into God's good books, who thinks that God owes them one, we'll hate grace. If we think God owes us one, we'll hate grace. That's the first thing I want us to see this morning. Just look at the the story again. It'll come on the screen. The younger son, as he's coming home, the older son's in the field, we're told. And verse 25, when he comes near the house, he heard music and dancing. That's a bit odd. He thinks it's it's a Wednesday afternoon. Why the merriment? So he calls over one of the servants. And the servant comes over and he asks him, what's going on? And he's told uh, of his father's amazing grace. The story we looked at last time. Your brother's come home. He's come back from the far country. He's broken off his sin. He's asked for mercy. And your father's welcomed him in. And not just that. Your father is so full of joy, he's killed the fattened calf. 
because he has his son safe and sound back with him. Well, I wonder how the older son will respond. We're surprised, really? He's come all the way back? With joy, my kid brother? He's come back, really? But no, he's angry. The response he chooses is anger. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And he's not just angry, is he? He's livid. He's so angry, he won't even go in and look and see his estranged brother. He sulks outside. And his father comes out to him, doesn't he, and pleads with him. Son, come on, come in. It's your brother. Come and see him. But his anger only increases, doesn't it? Imagine he shouts these next words. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, see, he can't even call him his brother, when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. It's really ugly, isn't it? Really ugly. But it's also understandable. And I think the danger is we, we see the ugliness and we recoil. We kind of put a, a mental block between us and him and if we do that we're in danger of missing the question do we too love grace do we love grace because the brother's behavior is understandable isn't it well maybe not his outburst that that's ugly but the underlying attitude is understandable isn't it his brother blows it spectacularly and he comes home and he gets a great blessing doesn't seem fair does it doesn't fit with how we think the world should be. Imagine if you have been working away at your job. Hopefully lots of you don't have to imagine that. Uh, but you've been working away really hard at your job. And you think this year I've, um, I've done such a good job, I probably deserve a, a small pay rise or, or um, a bonus. And so when your annual review comes, you're, you're hoping for that bonus. And you don't get it. And you think, well, fair enough, it's been a, a tough year for the company. Uh, you know, that's life. But then a few days later, you find out that somebody who, frankly, is incompetent. They're, they're, they're not just incompetent, but they're lazy. And, and they make it no sort of secret of that. They're, they're quite happy to own that they're lazy. It's a bit of a joke. Well, that person's got a huge pay rise. And you, you sniff around a bit, and you, you try and find out why. And you find it's not because they deserved it. Clearly, they don't. They're lazy and incompetent. But the boss knows something is going on at home, and, and money's a bit tight, and so, out of his kindness, he's given them a pay rise. Well, how do we feel? We feel frustrated, don't we? He's lazy and incompetent, and I've worked really hard, and he's got a pay rise. That's not the way things should be. That's not how we think the world should work. We think people should get what they deserve. Those who try hard, those who do well, get rewards. Those who mess up, well, they get missed out. That's how the world should work. But that's not how grace works. That is not how God in his grace works. And the danger for us is if we think God owes us something, then we'll hate grace. Listen again to this older son's complaint. He begins by detailing the things he's done, doesn't he? Why his father owes him. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And he has, hasn't he? He's worked really hard. When his brother comes home from the far country, where is he? He's in the field, working, 
like he's done all these years, working really hard. And okay, now he's being a bit rude to his father, but normally he does exactly what he's asked. He's respectful. He's a good son. And as he recalls these things, he thinks, my father owes me. I've been slaving here, and you've never even given me a small party. Surely I deserve a small kid, a kind of cheap animal. It's kind of the equivalent of a, I don't know, a Pam's chicken. Just a cheap sort of thing. I didn't even get one of those. But when your son who's been with the prostitutes comes home, you kill Christmas dinner. That's not fair. And that's exactly how the Pharisees think. They look at their goodness. They look at all their kind of religious stuff that they do and they think Jesus owes them. They think God owes them. And yet they see Jesus. He's eating with these sinners and tax collectors, the notorious outcasts of society, and not with them. And they grumble. Well, we'd never put it quite so starkly as this, would we? But it is really easy, I think, to slip into this mindset. It's easy to forget that uh, as Christians we were far away from God, that we were only became Christians by his grace, and to begin to look at all the good things we do. I've been a regular at St. Stephen's for so many years. I give 10% of my income to the church. I've helped in Sunday school. I've sat on the vestry. And somehow we think that all of this means that somehow we've, we've earned some gold stars in God's book. But then maybe something bad happens. And we're tempted to think, well, surely he owes me. Surely he owed me that job. Surely it's not fair that I got sick or that my children don't come to church anymore. And we think he's let me down. Where is the reward I'm owed? We begin to think. Well, the older son looks at himself and he sees his lack of reward. But what drives him mad is when he looks at his brother who doesn't deserve a reward and he gets it. Verse 30, when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf. He's been living it up at your expense and he gets rewarded. It's just not fair. And you see, the problem is not that he doesn't understand grace. It's not a problem with his understanding. He grasps it perfectly. An undeserving son who deserves nothing returns empty-handed and gets everything. That's the definition of grace, isn't it? Getting something we don't deserve at God's expense. That's grace. We don't deserve it and we get it. But the problem with grace is it doesn't look at what we've done. Grace levels the playing field. Grace says the older son and the younger son are equal in the same boat. That all of the older son's good behavior, all of his slavings don't put God in his debt. They don't give us a claim on God. And the older son hates grace. He doesn't want grace because he wants justice. I want what I deserve. Or at least what I think I deserve. He wants his strivings to count for something. It was my birthday this week. And uh, one of the young adults uh, very kindly gave me a, a present. And um, it's a great present. Some of the other young adults said I'd be too embarrassed to wear this great present at church. So... Um, uh, just to prove I'm not embarrassed of this present. <laughs> not only am I not embarrassed to wear it, I'm not embarrassed to spin the thing on the top. It's a great present. And uh, if you've fallen asleep and you've woken up because people are laughing, uh, you don't need to think about that. That's not important. But the, um, 
the, it's such a good present. I've been trying to think how I can uh, give Jacob Preston a, a good present back. <laughs> and um, I, um, I, I, as I was sorting through some things the other day, I came across uh, some old Japanese banknotes. They're really old. They're um, kind of pre-war banknotes. And I, I heard that Jacob's going to Japan at Christmas, so maybe I'll um, give this wadge of banknotes to Jacob for, uh, for Christmas. Well, just imagine Jacob takes those banknotes to Japan and uh, he thinks, well, I'm going to order a nice plate of sushi. So he goes to a sushi bar and he, he uh, orders a sushi and he hands over a couple of notes. Well, what's going to happen? We don't take those. They're, they're pre, I've seen them in a museum. They're, pre, they're not valid currency. And it, well, do you need more? No, 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 they're not valid currency. They don't work here anymore. Well, it's a silly illustration, but do you see the point? In the same way, our good deeds are not a currency God takes. I don't deal in the currency of good works. And the problem with grace is that it declares to us all of our old currency, all of our, our good deeds are worthless. They don't put us in God's debt. We can't buy anything from God with them. I might have stored up thousands of them in my cupboard over time, but I haven't got a claim on God. And if I know I've got nothing, grace is wonderful, isn't it? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch. And if I know I'm a wretch, grace is wonderful. I've got nothing in the cupboard. But if I look in my cupboard and I think I've got loads of stuff that makes God owe me, then I won't love grace. If I'm like the younger son, coming back knowing I've done nothing right, knowing God owes me nothing, grace is wonderful. But if I've been slaving in the field, doing all this religious stuff, doing all these good deeds, and then I go and try and cash it in and say, God, you owe me, I'm going to find myself disappointed and I'm going to hate grace because grace says all those bundles of good works are just scrap paper worth nothing. Well, how we respond to God's grace as we see it to others is a good indicator, isn't it, of what we really think of grace. Just imagine if a, an insurance company rep came to church and uh, he comes in and you see him and he uh, you vaguely recognize him because he was involved in a claim of one of your relatives after the earthquakes and this guy was notorious he, he consistently tried to kind of lower down claims and, and save the insurance company's money and he, he for want of a better word ripped off your friend and you see him he comes to church and he's back the next week and the next and after a few weeks he says i want to believe in jesus and uh, he repents and believes in Jesus. And then he joins your home group. And other people in the home group, they're so pleased to see him. And then a few months later, he's baptized. And we get him up the front, and everyone makes a fuss, and everyone's celebrating at God's grace to him. And how do you feel in your heart? Do you rejoice? Or do you remember all that stuff he's done to your friend? And you think, how can God be kind to him? Or maybe it's somebody in church and there's a brother or sister and they've hurt you deeply and you've made up and they've said sorry and you've reconciled but the scar remains, it's really painful. And then God begins to bless them and uh, they just seem to grow in, in their godliness and, and, and maybe they get married or they have a child and then they're asked to do some ministry in church that really we wanted to do if we're honest and we see them do it and do we rejoice at God's amazing grace to them? Or is our heart full of bitterness? 
how we respond when we see God's grace in others tells us what we think of God's grace. And friends, the problem is, if we hate God's grace, we find that actually we end up hating God. This is the second thing I want us to see this morning. If we hate God's grace, we'll end up hating our Heavenly Father. Because our Heavenly Father is always gracious. Do you notice the way the uh, Father deals with his Son? He deals with him with characteristic grace, doesn't he? He comes out to him like the uh, son, uh, like the father came out to the younger son. It didn't take me long as a teenager to realise that any conversation I began with my mother with a phrase like, look here, was going to end badly. <laughs> and what does he do? Look, Dad. He's rude, isn't he? He's really rude. And we expect him to get it in the neck. And yet, how does his father respond? He's not angry. He's gracious. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Aren't they amazing words to an angry son? Everything I have is yours. You're my beloved son. And then listen to the next bit. Verse 32, I think, is, is a bit odd. Listen to the odd. See if you can see what's odd in here. Everything I have is yours, uh, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this, son, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And I wonder if you think that's a bit of an odd phrase. We had to celebrate. Literally, in the original, it's, it was necessary to celebrate. Well, why is it necessary? Because God is the kind of God who's gracious. This is his character. He always responds this way in grace when sinners who've blown it come back. That's the character of God we saw two weeks ago, isn't it? If you were here with us, the... Uh, we saw the, the parable of the sheep where there's a hundred sheep and one gets lost and God goes and finds them. He doesn't just say, oh, it's only one sheep, doesn't matter. He goes and finds it. And it's, it's the way that God always rejoices when sinners come back. We see it in Jesus' mission to earth, that Jesus' mission is an overflow of God's gracious character, that before the beginning of time, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit so loved sinners were so gracious to sinners that they made a plan to send the Son to seek them and to save them, to seek and to save us. And we see that, don't we, as Jesus on earth welcomes sinners. He loves them. He doesn't send them away. He loves them. He tells them to repent. But he, he says, come to me, repent, and you, you'll be saved. We see it as he dies, that Jesus, the only person who's ever pleased God the Father perfectly, the one who should get a reward ends up hanging on a cross and he hangs there bearing the curse that we deserve for the way we've lived and it's not fair in the strict sense of fairness is it he's done everything right and yet he's cursed we've done lots of things wrong and we get away free because he paid the penalty it is just you look at this parable and you think maybe God's just winking at sin. Oh, sin doesn't really matter. You can do, live how you like. Just come back. No, the rest of the Bible tells us it is just. Sin will be paid for either by ourselves or by Jesus. But it's not fair, is it? Jesus, the good and godly Jesus, is punished. We get away scot-free if we trust in him because he's been punished. It's not fair, but it's grace. And God's character is always one of grace. And the problem is, he will always be gracious, and that's wonderful, unless we hate grace. 
Because if we hate grace, we hate God. Do you see in the oldest son's response, he doesn't just mutter against his brother, does he? He mutters against his father. The Pharisees and the religious teachers don't just look down on sinners, they look down on Jesus, who's kind to sinners. And though the older brother and the younger brother seem worlds apart, the Pharisee and the tax collector seem worlds apart, in their attitude to God the Father, they're the same. Do you remember last week, the, I said the, older, the, the younger son treated his father as if he were dead. He wants his father's stuff, but he doesn't want a relationship with his father. Well, the older brother wants a relationship with a father, but not this father. I want a father who's into justice. I don't want a father who's gracious. And he too, in his own way, rejects his father. And see that in the way he speaks to his father. What does he say? I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. He's his father, and yet he's made him into a taskmaster, a slave master. He thinks of himself not as a son, but as a slave. And the tragedy is that so, so many people can do that. Sometimes even Christians can do that. If you're a Christian, then verse 31 is true of you, isn't it? My son, my daughter, you are always with me, God says, and everything I have is yours. You're blessed with everything in Christ. And yet sometimes that gets, that gets scrambled in our heads. And we forget we're sons and daughters and think that we're slaves. We think we need to work to earn our father's love. And we lose the joy of our salvation. And we forget that God is kind and gracious. And we begin to strive. And when we think we're doing well, we pat ourselves on the back and we say, God owes me. We look down on others who's, who are not doing so well. But when it goes badly, we think, I've blown it. And we get very worried and insecure and we begin to think that God is not kind. We begin to think he's stingy. Won't even give us a small goat to celebrate with. When he's given us the whole estate. Everything in Christ. Every blessing in Christ if we're his. And if we begin to think like that, then it'll be hard to get excited, won't it, about God's mission of seeking and saving the lost. We'll think, well, if people want to hear the gospel, they can clean themselves up and come to church. And we won't, like Jesus, go out and seek and save the lost when people do come to church we won't be full of joy we'll grumble oh they're taking our seats up these are small intermediate seats there's not enough of them they're taking them up and we'll think oh they come with lots of problems and they're going to take up people's time and instead of rejoicing we resent and you see if we've become like that if we hate grace if we've begun to hate our heavenly father if we're not careful, we'll end up cut off from him. Of course, we still say we love grace. We still sing amazing grace, but in our heart, as we see it, we don't rejoice. And you see, we can be like that outwardly, very respectable, but inwardly we're in a pigsty, just as much so as the little brother. And you see how Jesus makes that clear from the contrasts. See, the younger son, he comes back, he acknowledges he's got, he, his father owes him nothing. And what happens? He's welcomed into the party of his life. And the older brother, he insists, God owes me, my father owes me. I've done well. And, and where is he standing? Outside, in a half. And the younger son's restored and, and is embraced and kissed. And, and he's full of joy as he parties. The older one is shouting at his father, despising his character, unable to rejoice. It's miserable. And though he thinks he's a good and loyal son... He's deceived himself. He's just as much in need of grace, isn't he, as his brother. 
But friends, do we see why Jesus tells this? He doesn't tell this story to drive the Pharisees away. He doesn't say it to scold self-righteous people. He says it to love them. He says it because he says you need to come to your senses, just like the younger brother. Come to your senses and come back to God. And if you do, God will be gracious because God is a God of grace. Come back and say, I need grace just as much as anybody else. None of us have been good enough for God, have we? God doesn't owe any of us anything. And if we've begun to think like that, we need to come to our senses. And I take it it's painful, perhaps even more painful for those who think they're good than those who've outwardly, obviously blown it. It's hard if we're self-righteous to admit we need grace. But you see, if we don't, we'll be left on the outside, grumbling. And Jesus says, come back. See what God is like. Let his grace melt your heart. Let the mercy of the cross, the grace of the cross, melt your heart and admit, I need that. God doesn't really owe me anything. All of my bundles of currency are just that, wasted paper. Say sorry, come home, and there'll be an amazing party. Instead of bitterness in our hearts, there'll be great joy as we can truly rejoice at grace. Well, we don't know how it ended. We don't know what happened to the older son. Jesus ends the story abruptly, doesn't he? We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the reality is the older brother is also lost. Lost in his anger, lost in his hatred, lost in his self-righteousness, cut off from his father outside. And we wonder, will he come in? And if he did, if the self-righteous person comes in, then there'll be a great party. And if we find that an elder brother's grown in our hearts and we've begun to despise God's grace, we'll come in and join the party and there'll be rejoicing today. Because whenever a lost sinner comes home, God rejoices. Whenever a sinner repents, God rejoices. It's grace and it's amazing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you are a God of grace. And we pray, would your grace melt our hearts that we would love it. That we wouldn't look at the things that we do that we think make us good or put you in our debt. But we'd look at the cross and we'd see Jesus pouring out his life for us. That all of the things we've done that aren't good, that are dishonorable, all of the ways we've said we don't want you as our father can be washed away. And we can be welcomed in to your party. And we pray that each one of us would know that joy this morning. For Jesus' sake. Amen.